I'm going to do this. I'm going to run for the United States Senate. The time is now for fresh ideas and new leadership. I'm running for student council because of you and for you. That is why I stand before you today to announce my candidacy for president of the United States of America. Welcome to the Arena Talks podcast, where we interview emerging political leaders from across the country. My name is Ravi Gupta, co-founder of the Arena, and today I share a conversation from our Arena Summit in Philadelphia in September. This is a conversation between Mayor Michael Tubbs uh, from Stockton, California, and the acclaimed author Anand Girdadas, who recently came out with a book called Winners Take All. The conversation largely centers on the question of philanthropy and the ethics of it. Uh, in Anand's book, he he talks about some of the, the trappings of philanthropy and, and, and how it might... Uh, be a, a fig leaf that prevents us from solving deeper societal problems. And Mayor Tubbs uh, shares his own experiments uh, in Stockton, California, including uh, a rollout of universal basic income for a, a subset of his population. And uh, we got really into it in this conversation about uh, the real need to help people on the ground and leverage as many resources as possible to do so, but also um, questions about how we ensure that we uh, don't fall into any traps as we do that. And so it was a really enjoyable conversation. Let's dig right in. I want to just jump right into this conversation, and I'll start by framing it. A few years ago, I was invited for the first time ever to this forum called the Aspen Action Forum. And I would love to tell you more about it, uh, but essentially it's the opposite of what we try to do here at the Arena Summit. It was a uh, invitation-only, super exclusive and expensive gathering of uh, people who uh, were millionaires and billionaires, and then a few, as, as Anand likes to say, uh, people they allow to hang out with them, which at the time described me. And in, I went to the back of the room for the, I think it was the keynote, it was the, the, the top-billed speech of the weekend, and uh, this guy got up, who I had never met before, and took it to the entire room, telling them that they're, the way that they viewed philanthropy, the way that they were convening that group, the names that were put on the buildings were uh, extremely problematic. And that speech became the basis of Winners Take All. And so uh, I wish we could talk more about that gathering, uh, but we'll spare you for now. Uh, you should listen to the Ezra Klein podcast where they spend uh, about five minutes talking about um, some uh, fun and challenging issues there. But what was the thesis and the, the point of that speech, and how did that turn into this larger work that is now available for all folks in this room? Thank you. Thank you guys for being here. I love the energy of this room and this community and the second time I'm here and you guys are just such a fun group. Um, I wrote this book because I actually think America right now is in the grips of two rival theories of change, of how you make change. There's the theory of this room, which is the theory I'm partial to, which is that you make change through politics and movements and law and policy, and you solve problems at the root and for everybody. When you see schools that don't work, you don't create one school in your town to which you donate some of your hedge fund money. You actually ask why public schools are underfunded and unequally funded, and you fix that. When you see women dropping out of the labor force, you don't tell them to lean in and raise their hand higher. You actually create the kind of family policies that allow women to play their many roles. Um, 
But that theory, which I don't need to convince you of, unfortunately, most rooms are not like this room in America today. And I actually think, although this room is steeped in that theory of how you make change, which is what I call real change, uh, in the last 30, 40 years, in the same period that the right has waged a war on government, on the idea of government, on the idea of doing things together as a public, in that same period, they were also doing something else which is less well known. They were trying to steal our idea of how change works. Because if they had just discredited government and run away, it wouldn't have worked, right? People would have been bleeding out in the streets and people would have been suffering and people would have been it turned on them as you did this. You, you made the taxes cut, you underfunded these programs, you called for people to not have health care unless they worked 30 hours a week and so every company therefore employs people 29 hours a week. You did this and the right would have lost everything. So what did they do? The same business interests, but unfortunately now not only on the right, it started to spread to the left. The same people who had pushed for a winners-take-all society, who had pushed for business to be deregulated, who had pushed for rich people to pay less taxes on their carried interest than you pay. Those same people reinvented themselves as the solvers of the problems they caused. The people who architected the age of inequality recast themselves as the saviors from the age of inequality. They signed the giving pledge. They adopted charter schools and sat on their board. They talked about changing the world through their monopolistic Silicon Valley companies. They built a gig economy in which no one has security and no one has careers, and they told poor people that they are micro-entrepreneurs. They rich-splained to us that change was something that trickles down, like money was supposedly to do in the 80s. They push trickle-down change. And they have tried, I believe, to steal the idea of change, to steal our idea of change, so that we start to think that change is something billionaires give us when they're done raping and pillaging our economy. I'm sorry if I'm being direct, but you all look like you need to wake up a little bit with this uh, morning time slot. <laughs> and I believe that until we can, it's not just enough to end Trump. Although, trust me, nobody wants to end him faster than I can. But Trump, the story of Trump didn't begin with Trump. I think Trump is the culmination of an era of fake change. And, awkwardly, that era of fake change wasn't just Republicans and it wasn't just people on the right. A lot of people on the left, rich people, billionaire saviors, people who maybe support causes like this, have also been peddling the idea that the world is saved by billionaires, by the people who cause the problems, that the people who have built our winners-take-all economy are our deliverance. And I think we can't just end the Trump era. We have to make the Trump era the end of the era of fake change and usher in what I call an age of reform. And so, before we hear from Mayor Tubbs and, and what he's been up to, uh, as, as, as quickly as you can, you have this theory in the book about what it means to, to act from generosity uh, versus acting from justice. Uh, what do you mean by that? Although they both sound, start with the, the j sound, generosity and justice are actually not the same thing. 
And what a lot of rich people have tried to do in our time, after building the winners-take-all economy, after architecting an economy in which there's actually no way that most Americans could ever transcend their circumstances. By the way, the odds of getting ahead in America, out-earning your parents, have fallen in the course of many of the lifetimes of people in this room from 90% to 50%. We are a crapshoot nation when it comes to social mobility today. It's not who we think we are, but that's who we are. And so what a lot of those folks have done is having built that economy, they try to kind of convince us that, you know, well, our minds, our, our mentalities, we, we're good at spreadsheets, we're good at PowerPoints, we're good at, you know, we can go in and we're, we're, we're clever with, with, with data. And they have used that to colonize the space of change making, to colon and, to, and to redefine reform in winner-friendly ways. That's one of the most important points I want to leave you with. On every issue, whether it's the schools or, or women empowerment issue I mentioned or any other, there is real change at the root and for everybody. And then there's a light facsimile of change which gestures at change and seems to make you a good person while totally protecting the system that keeps you on top. And so, Mayor Tubbs, you, uh, I was reading recently a political article in which you pointed out that you know, Stockton, a city that was forced into bankruptcy before you were mayor, was investing in things like you know, the redevelopment of the marina, you know, so people could park their yachts there. And you made the point that it can't just be about image, we have to invest in people. And that's led you down this road that now brings us to this, uh, this major project that you have to invest in a universal basic income project in Stockton. And I think for those of us who are interested in, ch in changes uh, coming from a place of justice, this seems like a really important step. Tell us a little bit about what's going on and, and what you hope to accomplish in 2019. Well, first, thank you so much for, for having me, and thank you for the, for the points you raised. I, I think taking the frame that we live in a society where folks who have money have undue influence on the political process, just being really pragmatic, um, for the past two years I've made it my duty um, to build relationships to try to get to some of that justice and using philanthropy to really seed crazy ideas with the hopes that one day they'll become policy. Um, so one example of that is the basic income experiment. So essentially, um, in February, at least 100 families will be given $500 a month for 18 months um, as a basic income pilot. Um, and what, what's fascinating is, is that we decided to do it at, at or below the area median income of $46,000, which means a lot of folks who are working and don't qualify for some benefits but still struggling will also benefit. But I think in, in this case, philanthropy has been really helpful to really try and test an idea that people have been talking about since the agrarian revolution in the late 1700s, but now actually do it and, and, and see what happens. So when, when we think about kind of philanthropy and, and social change, I think the points raised are, are valid in that it, we, we have to be very careful in that it's not done on the terms of folks who kind of benefit from society as it is. But if there are ways to kind of generate or use some, some of the resources and money to really get to crazy ideas and solutions that lead us to justice and lead us to policy, um, then I think that's the way to go. And so in, in service of that, like ensuring that the, that the work that you're doing is on the right terms, you brought citizens into the process uh, in deciding how this money is used. Talk about that. So in June, we had 60 foundations from across the nation kick it with me and stop. Uh, we had a whole day of tours and panels and discussions, but I was very adamant in that I, I don't, I'm not a 
organization. So let's talk to our community-based organizations. Let's talk to the folks on the ground. So we had the grandmothers, the organizers, and all the folks in the room kind of dictating um, where the money would go. And, and we did that because I, I realized, to your point, oftentimes folks would tell us what they wanted to give to. Um, so my challenge to the foundations in the room was, well, believe in us. Let's invest in a place and let's invest in a strategy that's collective impact but comes from the folks who are most affected um, by said issues. So since the convening, we've had follow-ups, conversations, and, and meetings, but it's been really, really eye-opening, I think, for the community and also for the philanthropic community as well. To really, for them, I think, to recognize that folks aren't they can figure it out. They may not have fancy theory of changes, they might not have went to Yale or Harvard, but they're smart and they're their own experts in terms of what's needed. And again, I think that one of the points we've been making is that philanthropy and money is not a panacea. It's not gonna solve all the ills of poverty and violence and educational attainment, but it helps. And it can help, especially if we marry that with a policy agenda. So you marry programs and policy, I think that's the way to get to the real change you talk about in your book. Can I ask you, so one of the curiosities I have about this, because I think what you're doing is very admirable, Un unlike a lot of these efforts, if you think about Mark Zuckerberg, he went to, you know, Oprah to announce to the people of Newark that he was about to save them, a city he never visited before deciding to save them, and TLDR didn't work. $100 million vanished without any, any change. You have clearly tried to do something different by having Rich people don't get to decide what the policies in Stockton are. You decide what the policies are locally, and they can pick and choose. But I have a question about how you navigate a couple things. Because a lot of these rich folks, to Ravi's earlier question, they love the idea of their own generosity. They don't like the idea of being brought to justice or maybe living in a more just system. They love being told to do more good, and they're happy to, but they don't like doing less harm. Um, they they like giving more, but they don't like taking less. So when those folks get on that bus and get out of that bus, I don't know the backgrounds of them specifically. I assume some of them made their money in finance and pushed for a tax system that makes it very hard to run Stockton, as you would probably want to. Uh, I imagine some of them are part of the automation economy that makes it hard to get work in Stockton. I wonder how you navigate the complicity the ongoing complicity of the very people who are helping and chipping in with their role in, in making things better. Do you feel like you can speak truth to them? Do you feel like you lose the right to speak truth to them when you get their help? I'm a little crazy, so I speak to everyone how I speak to everyone. So I, so, <laughs> so, so I think um, we have, we, but it depends on what we're talking about, right? So if they're on a tour and we're trying to get investment in Stockton, I probably won't spend an extraordinary amount of time about all the ways you're complicit. Uh, probably focus um, most- That's why I'm not the mayor of anything. <laughs> but, 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 but I'm gonna focus a lot of my energy and attention around sort of how to be part of a solution, but we always speak in, in terms of root causes. So for example, um, when I was on city council, Wells Fargo was doing a lot, like 100,000 here, 100,000 here for things, but I would always say this is great because of this foreclosure crisis where subprime lending, so I, I think there's a way to finesse it where they, where they get the point, but you're not necessarily prodding and poking. But luckily for us, a lot of our investments thus far have come from institutional, um, like some foundations and folks like that, and not as much from kind of individuals. But can I keep talking? Make the plug, yeah, get okay. the individuals. So, but I think one, um, 
one good example of this is, is Chris Hughes from the Economic Security Project. So the basic income pilot is funded um, by the Economic Security Project, which was co-founded by Chris Hughes, who's one of the co-founders of Facebook. Um, and, and, but I think the way... One of the slightly more decent co-founders. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't know Mark, so I'm a, I can't speak to that, but Chris is a, is a, is a good guy. Um, but I would say I've been impressed with how he speaks unapologetically about how like I got lucky, Mark was my freshman roommate. And that's why I'm wealthy. And because of that, we have to do something to make it so folks don't have the economic floor go out from under them. And that's where the funding for our basic income pilot comes. But it's been super refreshing because it just came with funding and that's it. So all the decisions, selection criteria, researchers, narrative, talking points come from the community. And I think he's a not a perfect example, but I think a better example of kind of using your resources to get to real change and using your philanthropy to get at policy versus just programs. And so I think in starting to score this on, is this on the generosity side or the justice side, there, part of it is what kind of conversation we have while the project is going on, but then there's this other conversation around what's the end goal and what is the end result and who wins and loses. And so what is the best case scenario you know, if this, this pilot works, what does the world look like and who wins and loses from that? Well, be best case scenario will be 300,000 people in Stockton come to city council and say, we want this for everyone. And then the millions of people in California say, we want this in California. And then the hundreds of millions of people in the United States say, we deserve this in the, in, in the country. So to answer your question, the best case scenario is, is, is seeing that it works or that's helpful and there's a public demand for us to kind of think of through kind of policy and scale um, to make it happen for everyone. I think one of the, the two things that, that your comments raised for me that I think are so important for everybody in this room who thinks about how do you make change. I think one, I think there's a kind of threat and an opportunity, to put it simple. I think the threat is everyone in this room and, and so many people before us have worked so hard for the idea of one person, one vote, right? And by the way, that issue is not over yet in American life as we know it. It'll be probably a perpetual issue. And one of the concerns I have, even when the money wasn't predatory, even when it wasn't foreclosure money, even if it's a noble foundation, it, one of the concerns that I just had writing this book is why do we devote so much energy to making sure we have one person, one vote, while we are creating a tax-subsidized, essentially fourth branch of government, which is philanthropic spending, that is the opposite of one person, one vote, in which none of us have a vote, in which they sit on our school boards and they sit on our uh, you know, health policy things. And it's $410 billion a year in philanthropic spending, which is getting to the level of federal non-military, non-discretionary you know, non -dis spending. Um, the opportunity raised by what you're doing that I think is very exciting is a lot of the givers right now, these private givers and billionaire saviors, want to remain outside of government. They don't want to do what you're doing. They actually want to hear from people as little as possible, which is why they announce things with Oprah instead of the people they're helping. Um, and a lot of what happened in the middle of the 20th century and Head Start's the best example, was philanthropists playing in the mud by themselves privately, testing things that worked without government breathing down their neck, without shareholders. And then when they proved it, going to government, 
and saying, okay, make this policy and do it through taxation and do it through the system. And that idea has fallen out of fashion today. And I think you are leading an experiment on bringing that back, the marriage of bringing some of this private money and private giving into the channels of public policy so people fundamentally are still shaping it. I, I think, you know, one thing, Anand, that you both raise in the speech and in your book is this metaphor of the starfish. And, I, and to paraphrase probably horribly, you know, there's this, and I'm, I'm a, a former charter school leader, by the way, so I'm in the hot seat with Tubbs here. Thank you, Stacey. Uh, and so I'm, this, is, this hits me uh, close to home, too, uh, a lot of the arguments that you make. And, and I, when you first made the starfish uh, metaphor, which is, you know, if you're walking down the beach, see a bunch of starfish, there is this, we used to actually say this in, in, in the reform community, if you can just throw one starfish back in the sea, you've done um, a lot of good. And the sort of point with reform is, you know, I and people like Stacey Shells and others, Will Packer in the room, folks who've been involved in the charter school community, we're not billionaires. Like, what we're trying to do is get as close to the problem as we can, and if Stacy were to wait to, for government to let her be a principal, she'd be 90 years old probably, and knowing how blunt Stacy is, she might never get there. Uh, so part of what we're dealing with is, is we, we both have the relationship with philanthropy, and I imagine this is true of, of uh, Mayor Tubbs as well, is like, there's an issue of like, getting the money, but then there's the issue of, even if you took the money incentive outside of it, of trying to get to the problem fast. And one of the issues that we have dealt with in reform, and I imagine this is true of universal basic income, is that it's also really hard to find solutions that can move fast for the people, the one in four people living in poverty in Stockton, or the uh, the kids who uh, we try to serve who, um, you know, they, they, it's urgent for them to be able to, to read and have a great school. So how do you think about the question of speed of the solution and just the nimbleness of government to solve some of these problems that we have? Uh, you know, so, I mean, that starfish story is so powerful, and it, it's interesting that it's become such a touchstone story in many social change circles. By the way, there's an original version of the story there by Lauren Isley, and this story actually does not contain the moment where one person throws one starfish back and the other says, Why, you know, what difference does it make? And he says, it makes a difference to that one. That version of the story that's so famous is a total made-up adaptation that has spread in this community, even though it wasn't in the original story, which is interesting. So why does it appeal to us? Why did we make up that, right? And, and what I would say is, and I, I spent a lot of time in this book with people attempting to crack that problem. The idea is never to not throw the starfish back. Right. It's a not only, but also. Right. Right? The, and, and, and I think the interesting question, so yeah, throw the starfish back, help the kids you can help, give money to families you, who can give money now. But I think the interesting question is, how do you use that, the small experiment you're doing, to force systemic reform? And that may be storytelling, that may be strategic shaming. I'm in the middle of writing a piece about LeBron School in Akron, which I just went to. There's one version where that's just an amazing, amazing school, and it really helps a lot of people. That's great. But if LeBron could use that school, once it's up and running, to shame America for not giving every student in America what he gave, if he could actually use his donation to say, I should have never had to do this, that would be what I call real change. 
So we're about to run out of time, and I think in reaction to this, like, and this is not going to help the cause of a lot of my other former friends, but the one of the, the the issues or conversations that led me to walk away from reform at the time that I did was that we were running these schools in Mississippi, and the people who were donating to us were starting to use the success of our schools to argue that you can run schools on less money because we were getting less money. And for me, that was not what we were about. That's not why we started those schools. We started them uh, to serve the children that we served and potentially uh, show people how to run schools better, um, but not cheaper. We think there should be 10 times as much money in our school system. And so what you're saying resonates with me. Um, I guess in closing, where do we go from here? So I think about the one in four people in poverty in Stockton, and I want to end with, I want to get away from the theoretical for a second and give Mayor Tubbs an opportunity, you know, one of our young, promising mayors who's facing a lot of challenges at home. What's the future for the people of Stockton? Um, and talk about, you know, that one in four in poverty and what this, this project can mean to them. Uh, and what folks in this room can do to support the work that you're doing. And I have less than one minute to do all that. Okay. So for you could take it. <laughs> many people can get mad at me, but uh, take your time on this one. I won't do that to you guys. But so, well, I think a lot of points raised today are really instructive and just about being careful and being deliberate and being strategic. Like there's a need to be pragmatic and use resources where they exist, but do so in a way that advances justice and policy and scale and not just for programs. And, and, I, and I appreciate that, so, so thank you for that. Um, in terms of the future of Stockton, I mean, I, I, my folks are tired of me saying it, but our best days are still yet ahead. Um, we're trending in the right direction, but particularly in the one in four, um, we're doing a lot of work with reform within the school district. Um, so policy changes and things of that sort. We're also thinking of bringing some high performing CMOs in as well as we do the policy change so the kids who are in third grade today have a good school today while we do the work that's going to take a decade to make it better for everyone. So in terms of the, the, the conversation today, we're really in this both and phase where we're, we're doing what we can today because people need help today. People need to eat today. People need to pay their bills today. People need to afford rent today. While also understanding that the policy stuff, the stuff that we actually have the most power to do, we could put it on the books, but it's going to take a decade or so for those things to resonate. Um, so in terms of what Stockton looks like in the future, I think you'll continue to see a city of possibility, a city where folks are innovating, where we're trying things, not just basic income, but um, amazing things around gun violence reduction. We've made CSU tuition free for 90% of our public school students, CSU being our, our state university system. Um, we're going to figure out something. We're going to figure out something crazy to do around housing and housing affordability. Just continue, continuing to innovate and understand the need to be quick, but also be thoughtful. Um, again, because the one in four people can't wait for ten years for for some of the issues they have now, but also be mindful that the last, the best thing we can do is put policies on the books. So when I'm done being mayor, the work continues and sustainable. It's not contingent on me being a personality for for things to get done. Great. And so, uh, winners take all. We have copies of the books out on the round table. Free copy. In the spirit of Oprah, free copies. Free copies. And by the way, uh, Mayor Tubbs is one of the few people Oprah has endorsed directly. So if you're listening, Oprah, um, he's had your back. Uh, 
No matter what anybody says about it. Absolutely. Happy to go on your show and announce anything, Oprah, if you're listening. And um, I'll give it to Anand to... I, I just want to say one just announcement for all of you. We are... My wife, who you're going you're gonna to hear from later, she's going to do a weird, crazy, amazing experience for you downstairs with all those circular chairs you saw. Um, she's an amazing conflict resolution facilitator, and she specializes in bringing people together. And she is helping me organize a series of dinners around this country, off the record, private dinners in people's communities where they can actually grapple with some of the questions we've talked about today. What is real change? What is fake change? What, how do you get from generosity to justice, etc.? If any of you would like to sign up to be hosts for these dinners and take this conversation to your communities, DM me on Twitter. My DMs are open, as is my heart, and I will make it happen. All right, thank you, everybody. Let's give them a round of applause.